Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Thomas Sexton. Tom is in his seventh year of a PhD program at WSU, working under the guidance of Dr. Asif Cousins in the School of Biological Sciences. Tom is is examining the physiological variation in plants, focusing on spring wheat cultivars. Using greenhouse and growth chamber studies, his research aims to quantify which traits are responsible for improved performance in crops under dry conditions, while evaluating methods of high throughput screening. Hello, Tom. Hi, Drew. So uh, what do you consider the main aim of your research? Well, I guess I, uh, I, I think of myself as a leaf-level physiologist. Uh, and so really understanding the mechanisms that are regulating you know, carbon uptake and the loss of water at, at, at the leaf level is really what I'm interested in. And so, I, in, again, in ASIF's lab, I think we try and link those those processes within the leaf to how plants are responding as a whole. And, and me specifically, I'm really interested in, in water relations. This, this kind of trade-off that happens is plants are forced to open stomata to get CO2 really to grow. They're forced to lose water uh, as a consequence. And again, under dry conditions, that can be uh, a tough trade-off to balance and how, how are you regulating water loss throughout the growing season. And, and so that, that really has kind of defined a lot of the work that I've done is, is trying to really understand some of the regulatory uh, mechanisms of that process. Okay. So what specific physiological differences are you looking at? So um, there's, there's a lot of things that affect uh, how plants respond to, to dry conditions, what I oftentimes just refer to as drought, even though, uh, you know, an agronomist might say that drought is, is defined as something much more severe, but just in dry conditions in general. Um, you know, uh, plants may flower early to just escape those really dry periods that happen later on in the season, especially in, in areas like Pullman, where we typically don't see a lot of rainfall during the summer. Um, other traits can just be things like a deep rooting that allows plants to, to access additional water to really avoid those physiological effects of drought, especially, again, in places like Pullman, where in some areas we do have really deep soils where they can hold those water reserves. Um, Osmotic adjustment, I think, is a real interesting trait where plants accumulate more solutes in the leaves as a way to, to generate a lower water potential to extract more water from the soil. Um, and, and also things like thicker leaves that allow them to lose less water but potentially have more photosynthetic machinery within those leaves. Um, and, and I guess the main trait, these are all things that are surrounding you know, how plants respond to yield, but um, I, I really want to acknowledge how important they are, but at the same time, in the, in the greenhouse and growth chamber studies that I do where we're growing plants in pots, it's a step removed from the field. And, and so really the, the key trait that we look at is what we refer, that I look at in my research, again, ASIF's laboratory is very diverse, but what I'm really interested in is what we call water use efficiency, which we define as the amount of above-ground plant biomass that the crops are producing, you know, how how much this plant can you generate uh, for a given amount of water used? And, and at, the, at the agricultural level, we might think of this as, you know, how much grain are we getting for a certain amount of irrigation or precipitation? 
Um, and, and again, in places where it's not feasible to irrigate, which large parts of the United States, you know, precipitation is really the determining factor. You see a close to linear relationship in terms of rainfall or precipitation that year and the yield. And and so the ability of plants to, to produce without water is, is very low. You know, it's really essential that they have that water. But we're trying to find individuals that can produce more biomass for a given amount of of water that they've used, trying to, in a sense, kind of break that linear relationship that we're seeing between available water and an amount of you know, plant biomass that they're able to generate. And so one of the reasons that we're really interested in water use efficiency is because this is, again, what allows plants to grow in dry conditions. And, and I like to bring up the example of a cactus. A cactus is really good at producing biomass when there's very little water available. But a lot of the traits that a cactus have aren't necessarily advantageous traits in an agricultural system. You know, we don't want to start growing cactuses because they're not going to grow very fast relative to weed. They may be highly efficient, but they're not highly productive. And, and so that's what our research is, is really getting at, is how can we increase efficiency to make more, you know, more plants for limited amounts of water, but at the same time maintain high yield and maintain high productivity without limiting how much, how much yield the plant is really producing. And, and this is one of the reasons why we have different, and the breeders are probably much more knowledgeable about this than I am, I should be careful here, but um, the reason why there are cultivars that are generated for lower precipitation regions than higher precipitation regions, because if you take those cultivars that do really well relatively under those low water conditions and you move them to higher precipitation areas, they are outcompeted by the better adapted cultivars. And, and so again, there's kind of this trade-off between efficiency and productivity and and so that's what our research has really looked at. Okay. Yeah. As you, as I think about it, the, the, you take something and you want it to be really efficient, but it, when you have those good conditions, it just isn't the racehorse that's going to produce that you really want. And so there has been that trade-off, and you're looking to try to break that, that trade-off, or figure out how you can not have that more efficient plant that can't take advantage of the really good conditions? Is that, am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, exactly. That was okay. a really great summary. And, okay. And, and there's kind of been a, a bit of a debate in the literature as whether we should be, you know, intentionally breeding for greater water use efficiency or whether we should breed for the exact opposite, breed for plants that are just productive regardless of if they have terrible efficiency because at the end of the day, we just want yield. We don't really necessarily care how it's done. Um, and... And, and so that's where maybe I'll highlight one of the, the studies that we did that we're working on publishing now is we, we took um, cultivars that were well adapted to drought and we measured water use efficiency over their lifetime. And, and we related this to the known yield that these, that these cultivars have. And what we saw was really interesting. And it was that um, plants that had greater water use efficiency, that were more efficient, also were producing more biomass. They were more productive. And, and this was interesting and exciting and what we really found that of all the the photosynthetic and stomatal traits that we looked at the really the driving force for what appeared to be regulating plant water use efficiency was the temperature of the leaves the wheat leaves we had grown mm -hmm. and and the reason for this as as we developed and looked at other people's uh, plant environment models at uh, this day if you're a if you're a, a, scien a scientist in the life sciences you spend most of your time looking at models at least that seems to be where a lot of things are headed. But when we look at the models, they, they, they described what we expected or what we observed really well, and that was that a cooler leaf is going to have a lower absolute humidity at, at a relative humidity of 100% relative to a hotter leaf that also has a relative humidity of 100% within the leaf. But because that absolute humidity is lower at lower temperatures, 
the vapor pressure difference in water between the inside of the leaf and the atmosphere is lower. So the rate of water movement, just because that concentration gradient out of the leaf is lower. And so cooler leaves were more efficient, but they were also more productive because there are two different reasons that we saw leaves being cooler. One of the reasons that some leaves are cooler is they're just transpiring more and you get that the latent heat exchange, just like sweating on us, we cool right. down. But the other reason that we saw leaves being cooler was their orientation relative to the sun. Leaves that were more upright, that were more vertically oriented, you know, had less direct you know, sunlight hitting them, and as a result, they stayed cooler than more horizontally oriented leaves. And, and in either one of those cases, regardless of what was causing different differences in leaf temperature, the effect being that cooler leaves were, had more water use efficiency and ultimately resulted in plants producing more biomass. Okay, so, so is that cool leaf, is that kind of what you're looking for to find a plant that survives under, under dry conditions, or is there, are there other traits that you're looking for that, that help? determine or help you decide whether a plant is going to be able to survive drought or not? Or so, that, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And there's, um, the, and that's, again, that's the challenge of us. We're trying to relate these growth chamber studies to field conditions, and that can be uh, really challenging because, again, we have simplified conditions where we're better able to control exactly what's happening, whereas in field conditions you have so many things affecting the plant. And um, and, and again, this, this study was exciting because we think thermal imaging is going to be a really valuable tool for identifying efficient cultivars. Um, and not only just because they appear to be more efficient, but also cooler canopy leaves have been shown before to be an indication that plants have better access to water, that they may also have some of these deep rooting traits that are also advantageous. Um, and, and so we were excited to see that more evidence that this, this technique could be valuable not only for identifying productivity, but also for efficiency, that those two things aren't necessarily... Um, aren't necessarily um, mutually exclusive. You may be able to have both, um, okay. which would kind of be the ideal crop, we think. And, and again, um, we're, we're a bit removed from the actual growing of crops. And, and, and part of the reason why we're looking at technologies like thermal imaging is because as we're interested in this leaf-level physiology, in order to scale this up to actually be able to incorporate some of this valuable physiological variation into cultivars, you'd have to have a way for the breeders who are, you know, evaluated hundreds and thousands of lines, for them to really screen this on such a massive scale can be a real challenge. Um, and, and so we're not, we're not unaware of those, you know, real um, logistical issues in trying to, to move this from the lab into the field. But the, the other study that maybe I, I would like to highlight that's related is uh, a different experiment that we did where we looked at, again, uh, a handful of varieties that had, um, and in this case, we looked at two varieties that were well adapted to these low precipitation re regions and two varieties that were adapted to higher precipitation regions. And we expected to see some differences in water use where the, the tolerant varieties were, had more conservative water use. They were saving water. They weren't, um, you know, they're kind of, I think they might be allocating it out throughout the growing season. That's kind of what's been speculated in the literature is that, you know, plants that are adapted to low water conditions are really good at, um, at conserving water and, and saving it for these critical times when they need it later in the growing season. But what we saw is once we withheld water from all these plants, it was the, the drought-tolerant cultivars that really um, you were using water aggressively. They were putting out more leaves, um, and they had higher stomatal conductance that were transpiring at greater rates during this first um, nine-day period following the, the, you know, the removal of watering where they were starting to dry down mm -hmm. really severely. And this was, it was interesting to us because it was kind of the opposite of what we might have expected. But what we saw was that during the time when those plants were more aggressively using water, they accumulated more biomass and they had a greater water use efficiency. 
Um, and, and again, I don't want to overstate the differences between pot and field experiments, but what this indicated to us is that these drought-tolerant cultivars may not have this conservative water use that people expect, but may instead um, be spurring additional root growth or, again, as I mentioned earlier, they may be accumulating solutes to extract more water from the soil. But it seems that productive cultivars that we've developed in the past, not only do they appear to be efficient, but they also seem to be um, aggressive users of water, um, which is a little bit contrary to what's been established in and at least from this study, it, it seems, again, that productivity and efficiency, um, you don't necessarily have to choose. We maybe need to breed for both these traits at the same time. Oh, very interesting. Now that, that does go contrary to many things I would just think uh, about what a drought-tolerant plant is doing versus uh, a plant uh, not under stress. So, so you're looking also looking at high-throughput uh, screening techniques. What are you hoping to do with, with that? Yeah, um, and as I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, we'd really like to see some of these physiologies be able to be moved, you know, from from the greenhouse or the growth chambers into into field studies. And again, the way that's really going to happen is through some sort of of technology that's going to allow us to identify variation of physiology to big scale. And, and maybe I'll back up a little bit here. And and um, during the the green revolution from the '60s to about the turn of the century. We saw these massive increases in yield in a lot of cereal grains as a result of these dwarfing varieties that were created. Um, and some of them right here at, at WSU. Um, and I, I think that's a, a cool bit of history. And this really steep increase at, at the a steep increase in the rate of yield, you know, per acre was driven by these new traits that were introduced by these dwarfing varieties. You know, some resistance to diseases, um, lodging resistance, and and higher amount of grain that, or higher amount of plant biomass that was allocated to the grains, yeah. but it seems like uh, that these traits may be reaching their physiological optimums. The traits that we've really been selecting for have have been bred to be at the absolute maximum that they may be able to be reached. And and again, around the turn of the century, it seemed like yields in wheat appear to be plateauing. That again, we're maintaining high yields, but we it's it seems like the rate of increase in, in those yields is not getting any higher, and so. There's a, the, again, the research seems to indicate that, um, that we need to be, again, as a scientific field, we need to be looking at new traits to select for. And that's where a lot of this physiological work is rooted in, is we need to kind of understand what's happening at the, well, I think at the leaf level, a lot of people would argue at the root level. Um, and I, th I think both is true. Uh, both are true. But, um, and, and so, again, so the high-throughput technology that we're looking at, as we mentioned, was, was thermal imaging, which I think is really valuable for looking at some of those water use traits. But the other things that, that my research has looked at is uh, carbon isotope discrimination, which is it, it gives you an indication of the relative concentration of CO2 within the leaf. And, and so what, what you're measuring when you measure carbon isotope discrimination is a ratio of 12 carbon, which is the, the everyday carbon that we see that's 99% of all the carbon that's in the atmosphere of CO2. It has... 12 electrons, 12 neutrons, and 12 protons. Um, but then there's this uh, stable isotope of carbon-13C, uh, and this has an extra neutron, and so it gives it just a little bit higher mass, and it's stable, it doesn't break down. And, and plants, again, as the name implies, they discriminate against the 13C and preferentially fix 12C. And so if you look at um, plant tissue, you're going to see less uh, 13 carbon than you would in the atmosphere and the air they're breathing right now. And this has been a tool that's, that's been used for, I think, about 40 years now. And so it's not new by any means. And part of the, it's valuable because it gives you an indication of, of how physiologically kind of active the plants are, how efficient they are in terms of how open 
Are there stomata? How much CO2 are they getting into the leaf? Uh, but the challenge is that there's a lot of different processes that affect uh, this discrimination. And that's what we've tried to define a little bit more in some of our, in some of our research. Um, and for example, as, as plants open up stomata, they get more CO2 into their leaves. They increase their photosynthetic rates. But as a result, they're losing a lot of water. And so a, a higher discrimination that occurs as a result of this greater CO2 is typically indicates a lower efficiency. Well, one of the things that this carbon isotope discrimination doesn't include is the rate of water diffusion, because again, you're only measuring the carbon side of the reactions. So you're really not seeing those transpirational losses, and and so trying to combine this these discrimination measurements with thermal imaging may allow as as a way to get a better estimate of how efficient plants are being, um, and so really just trying to get a, a better sense of of really what those measurements of discrimination are indicating is. Is, is part of the goal of our research. And, and you know, we, we've had mixed success where we've seen certain, certain varieties that are really well reflected in their carbon isotope values and other ones that appear to have other processes that are influencing. And we're um, trying to get a little further on describing what some of those differences are and if there's ways that we can use those or avoid some of those confounding influences. And, and again, we're a long ways away from being able to really interpret some of that data that comes back from, from the breeders. And from just a conversation I had with Aaron Carter, I know he measures, he's been measuring carbon isotope discrimination from the grain of a lot of, of his winter wheat for a lot of years. And, and again, he, he's told me that he isn't able to make any valuable predictions from it. It hasn't told him anything useful. And again, to, to me, that indicates that there's something else going on, that there's other um, physiological effects of this affecting the discrimination that we're, not, that we're not accounting for. We need to combine that with some other measurements to really get at that physiology. Um, and, and to segue a little bit, the last, the last technique that, that we've examined in our lab is um, what's referred to as hyperspectral reflectance, which is the reflected light coming off of a leaf at wavelengths all throughout the visible as well as the near-infrared and then the short-wave infrared. And, and as, as you might expect, in the visible region, you get most of that reflectance coming back in the green, which is why leaves appear green to us. Um, and, and these measurements of reflectance are really rapid and high throughput and non-destructive of leaves. And, and they can tell you a lot of things about the leaf. For example, um, there's something called the SPAD meter that I'm not sure if you're familiar with, yes, but it, yeah, it, just, it uses two of those reflectance wavelengths to give an indication of greenness or how much chlorophyll is there. And so again, a, um, a, a simpler version of this exact same technology, but in, instead of using um, two wavelengths, the reflectance gives you about 1,000. And so you're getting information about the plant's reflectance, which again can give you health and water status and and nitrogen status and a whole lot of other information that we're not exactly sure and that's kind of what the challenge is is there's so much information coming back that we're not entirely sure what it means or what it's relating to or what's really driving some of those signals but, but again our goal from our research is that if we can develop models from all that reflectance data to make predictions of of things like water use efficiency and photosynthetic capacity you know what is the plant's real ability to fix carbon we may be able to 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 incorporate some of those measurements into these uh, high into these really large-scale breeding programs in order to, again, screen for some of these efficiencies that appear to, to have a lot of room for improvement on them since they haven't been selected on before just because of how challenging they are to measure. Okay. So it sounds like you work with the wheat breeders here and that your research may one day inform the wheat breeding process. How, how do you see your research, what you're doing today, impacting wheat growers in the future? Yeah, that, I, I think you yeah, you described it well. That I um, that yeah, I'd, I'd like to be able to to understand the physiology well enough to 
to, to one, identify what traits need to be selected for. And there's a lot of work from a lot of labs around the world that are trying to, trying to really hone in on what traits are going to give us the most improvement in the yield that we're, that we're seeing under, again, the, the environmentally stressful conditions we're seeing of water limitation as well as likely increases in temperature that'll again place more evaporative demand on plants and, and increase our water requirements. And, and so can we identify those traits and can we develop the tools that would allow breeders to actually select for them? And, and so that's where I, I'm optimistic that this research is able to go is to, to improve our ability to use some of these tools to make some more informed breeding decisions and to increase the array of, of traits that breeders maybe have at their disposal to select for as they're looking at different cultivars. Because again, they've got an incredibly challenging job and um, you know, as, as you're looking at so much information, and again, this is a little bit outside of my area since I spent all my time in the lab, but I'd like to be able to translate those findings that we find in, in a greenhouse to some way that we can look at them in, in a field setting where we can really you know, identify what's a great cultivar and how can we, how can we make those, those selections more rapidly and easier to, to, to see things that we, you know, we can't see when we're just looking at plants. We can't see how efficient we are. We can't see how quickly they're using water. Um, but if we could, I think we could, I think we could generate a better plant because a lot of the, the drought tolerant traits that I talked about earlier, these are traits that maybe help survival, but do they help yield also? And, and again, kind of going back to this idea of we want plants that are efficient and productive and yield well and have high survival and, and, and trying to combine all these in a way that maximizes plant productivity is, again, it, it's what I'm really interested in. It's what I'd really like to, to provide um, to those breeders. And, and again, it, it may be a long ways off or really able to, to conclusively say how we're going to do that, but but I'm hopeful that it'll happen. I'm very uh, pleased to see and understand the interactions within WSU that's not just the College of Agricultural Human Natural Resources working on plants. We also have uh, very capable scientists in the School of Biological Sciences, and they're all working together uh, to understand plants better, and that should help farmers in the long run. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it's a great community here, and it's, it's been a lot of fun to work with, uh, with scientists from different fields. Yeah, there's, there's always more to learn, and it's fun to talk to people who have you know, expertise in so many different areas. I agree. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.